We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Aitman is intercepted by Sam Mills. Steve Smith is going to go all the way. Panthers win in overtime. Newton steps up, throws for the end zone. Olsen, touchdown! Brian Burns to the house! This one is picked again. Intercepted by Boston. Bridgewater, throw into the end zone, touchdown! Samuel still on his feet, inside the five, to the end zone, touchdown! What a play! And it is caught for the touchdown by Moore. And in the foot race, McCaffrey to the end zone. Keep pounding on three. One, two, three. Keep pounding. All right. Welcome back to another edition of The Roar, a Carolina Panthers podcast right here on Blue Wire. John Ellis is my name, joined by my co-host, Billy Marshall. We've got a big one today, folks. It's all about the Super Bowl. We're going to break it down. Billy and I haven't talked since the big game, so we're going to give you our analysis on what went down on Sunday and and sort of foreshadow where Tampa is moving forward and where Carolina fits into that mix because it is a very relevant conversation to be having right now. We're going to break down Carolina's offseason. But first, let's welcome in our special guest today, one of my favorite people on the planet. He's a great reporter. He does such great work for the Los Angeles Times, has been doing this for a long time. Just covered another Super Bowl in Tampa, and we're going to get into that and much more. It's Sam Farmer from the Los Angeles Times. Sam, how you doing? Welcome to the Roar Podcast on Blue Wire, and this is a thrill to have you, man. Thanks for making time. Well, thanks so much, John. I'm doing well. I, I'm here in uh, Pebble Beach, California. It's a gorgeous day, and uh, I think it's going to rain tomorrow, but it's uh, just a postcard day, cloudless here, and I just ran into Jim Nance, and I told him I'm following you all around, so we're going <laughs> to do lunch tomorrow. <laughs> Jim Nance. Pretty nice. 
Yeah, I, that is Jim Nance country, of course. You know, uh, Pebble Beach is his is, yep. is home. And you've got a cherry gig, though. You're out there at Pebble Beach right after you went to one of the most fascinating Super Bowls, Sam, that I've ever seen. You know, I haven't seen them all, but I've seen a lot of them. What was the atmosphere like in a COVID world at the Super Bowl? Yeah, John, it was, it was surreal. Um, from the moment I got there, it felt like uh, sort of the uh, neutron bomb Super Bowl in that it was all the sort of all the trappings of the Super Bowl in terms of the signage and the, the giant Lombardi trophy on the hotel and, and the, you know, you'd see the logo and some of the merchandise shops, but, but no people. And it was not until probably Friday afternoon that you started to see people show up. Typically in a Super Bowl, there's, uh, you know, a throng of people early in the week and then it, it expands and it's a mass expanse of people by Thursday. Right. Um, and so this was very different. Um, and when you got near anything that was league controlled was very buttoned down. I mean, everybody at the league was wearing double masks. Um, Wow. But in other situations, you'd go into a restaurant and nobody had a mask on. So it was a little <laughs> strange, uh, especially coming from uh, California where yeah. people do mask up quite a bit. So, right. uh, so that, was, that was different. And then the actual event, you know, with, with all the cardboard cutouts in the, in the stands and, and the vaccinated workers who were there and just the, uh, the lengths the NFL went to to space people out and it was I think there might I think it was 118 people in the press box where normally it was um, over a thousand I think right. it was it was uh, actually I, I want to say less than 10 percent of the typical media contingent um, so that was uh, really unusual and um, you sort of had to do different things to add value to sort of uh, explain why you were there because so much of it could be covered remotely. I thought it was great with the cardboard cutouts, the way they spaced these out, because we had seen that all year, of course, throughout stadiums, giving it a real full look. I thought it looked like a Super Bowl, and it, it certainly was dynamic. Yeah, you know, it's amazing. Um, if you think of how, I guess, how far we've come in terms of uh, moving off where we were before the season – Remember when Joe Buck uh, before the season said, I think there's going to be fake noise and people uh, were apoplectic, you know, they thought, what fake noise? Now that's just standard issue. You're like, of course there's fake noise. And of course there, there are, you know, uh, cutouts or simulated uh, spectators and those things that seem kind of normal now in this weird topsy turvy world, uh, not so long ago seemed completely outlandish that, that you would do that. So, um, you know, we've, we've all, it's an altered reality that we've sort of grown used to. Sam, thank you again for joining us this evening. You know, as you look back at these two teams and the way they've been constructed, whether it's through the draft or through free agency, to me, what stands out, number one, is the receiving cores of each team. Now we can discuss some of the kind of lesser known guys like a Demarcus Robinson or Nicole Hardman, but for Kansas City, it's uh, Kelson Hill. And then obviously Tampa, their pass catchers, we don't have to go through them. But 
you know, as you look into this offseason, usually like teams want to replicate an approach that championship teams usually have. Um, finding a Mahomes or Brady is easier said than done. Um, so do you expect the league to potentially really kind of load up on finding elite pass catchers to really help the quarterback and the offense this offseason and in the future? Yeah, Billy. I mean, you do see uh, see the sort of copy copycat effect uh, after a Super Bowl winner, and and uh, I think you're right that uh, it's going to be tough to find quarterbacks like this. Obviously, it starts and ends with the quarterback. Well, I don't think it ends with the quarterback, but with these teams, obviously, that's uh, such a strength. But uh, you know, both these teams have. Um, guys who can stretch the field. And you mentioned Nicole Hardman and obviously Tyreek Hill and, um, you know, Scott, Scotty Miller and, and, uh, you know, they, they're able to, both teams have, have guys who can kind of get vertical. Uh, not every team has that. I, I saw a lot of Rams games this season. They don't have that player, but, um, you know, kind of difficult to replicate the success and the sort of uh, weapon you have there at quarterback. Um, defensively, uh, Kansas City came a long way uh, this season uh, and rounded into a, a solid defense, uh, certainly uh, against the run and up front. I think there were, you know, Frank Clark and, and uh, some of those players were really tough and, and you had the best run defense in the league in uh, Tampa Bay. Um, but yeah, so I, I definitely could see if you can assemble a receiving core like these teams have, that'd be a huge strength. I just think, especially with the, the cap, is going to come down a little bit. It's going to be tougher to keep people. And, uh, you know, I don't know if, if it, it will be so easy to assemble the, the receiving core like that. Sam Farmer, LA Times, joins us right here on The Roar on Blue Wire. You can find his work, of course, at latimes.com. And he's a great Twitter follow, at LA Times Farmer. Sam, speaking of which, your article on Bruce Arians uh, with, with his son. Let me, let me just first of all say, I, I commented on this picture yesterday. Bruce in that chair and with that monster energy drink is just peak Bruce Arians, is it not? I, I just thought that was the best <laughs> yeah. photo. You, you guys could have laid out, by the way. That was great. But take, take me inside uh-huh. that room with Bruce Arians, one of the most fascinating figures in modern football, from my view, just his, his sailor language, his ability to speak plainly, but also strategically what, what a good mind he's had over the years. What insights did you gain talking to Bruce one-on-one right after his first Super Bowl win as a head coach? Yeah, well, well John, it was just, uh, you know, a really special experience and one that, you know, may never happen again because just think, I mean, you're with uh, a coach in his home hours after the Super Bowl, and this is, you know, this is obviously the first Super Bowl in which a team played on its home field. So, uh, other, you know, the coach would be out of town. Sam, was that in his house, or was that like a condo? He, was that was that actually his house? No, that was it. That was in his house. That's remarkable. That was in his house. Yeah, yeah. No, you know, we I I went over um, in the morning after the MVP uh, press conference. I was invited over there, and and uh, I've known Bruce for many years, and 
and it was just such a great moment. And so we played with his grandkids out in the front yard. I mean, he was doing that on Super Bowl Sunday uh, as neighbors were driving by. You know, he's got the Kangle on. He's instantly identifiable right. uh, as Bruce Arians. And he's pushing his kid in the swing in the front yard, his grandson. And um, so we tossed the football around and then retired to the living room and just hung out there. Um, you know, he hadn't gone out to eat uh, for since July with his wife, but now he's been vaccinated. So he was looking forward to going out and getting, getting a grouper sandwich uh, at a favorite place he has on the water. Um, so he's a man of the people, you know, he wants to get out there. And, and that's why he was upset about the parade situation, although they cleared a boat parade today. Um, what a scene that was. Really, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, wow. But it was, it was terrific. We talked about all different kinds of things and laughed and, and he told uh, funny stories, funny things about the season. He talked about how, how Gronk, you know, how the, this sort of bizarre season when they, they couldn't get together, the challenge of bringing a team together with a brand new quarterback um, when you can't have meals together, you can't go out and bond together. Um, you know, a lot of your stuff is done virtually, so guys don't even know each other. And he said, Gronk, and I thought this was so on brand for Gronk, he said, Gronk doesn't even know the names of some of the guys on the team. So <laughs> that was really funny. Yeah, just, I just found that really funny. Uh, and here's a guy who was so instrumental, you know, two touchdown catches in the in the Super Bowl. And, and so, uh, you know, Bruce is just Bruce. He doesn't really uh, – worry about what he talked you know just very candid very unvarnished and um yeah i mean it's it's uh, pg-13 uh at least language <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, he's got he's so endearing that way and disarming in how honest he is in a league where people are increasingly concerned about every word that they say uh, he just sort of tells it like it is and he's not he's not worried about it. So he talked about chewing out a team employee when, you know, and, and sort of in the bluest language possible. when this, this guy came down in the elevator with Gronk and it was the first day of camp. And, and the elevator said one, only one person in the elevator and there were two. And so he swore him up and down and said, you know, you idiots basically, uh, what are you doing? Last I checked, it said one person. There are two in the two of you in the elevator, and he was kind of yelling. And Gronk, uh, uh, he paused, and Gronk said, "Nice to meet you, Coach." <laughs> so, it was it was funny. Yeah. So and you know he talked about Tom Brady and the practice schedule and how how he's giving Brady time off and and um, you know just any number of things we talked about and, and uh, you know, how he had hoped to go play golf with Brady uh, during the bye week. And they were going to hop in a plane and, and go up to Georgia to play golf, come back, get tested. But the league said no. And he really didn't like that at all. And he really wanted to use that time to further bond with, with Brady. So uh, he doesn't pull any punches and, 
as I said, it was a unique experience. It was um, maybe once in a lifetime because uh, how often are you going to get a coach who's playing in his uh, home city? And, you know, how often are you going to get a coach like Bruce Arians who's just going to let loose? And uh, so it was really cool. It was really a, a fun fun morning. And, and then I flew to Pebble Beach, and that's where I am right now. So it was a, a whirlwind, uh, whirlwind day but uh, a great day. You know, as you look forward to this offseason, there's going to be just a lot of movement, not only with quarterbacks. We're already seeing Orlando Brown request a trade. Uh, I'm sure there's other players who feel like, uh, I mean, there's going to be other player acquisition um, that are going to really kind of just light up Twitter and the NFL news. But what are you most looking forward to as we approach this offseason? Is it going to be um, the quarterback movement, obviously? Is it going to be how teams kind of um, structure, you know, how they're going to fit under the cap with it dropping a little bit this offseason? How do you anticipate teams really navigating this offseason? Yeah, both both of those things you mentioned, I, I think, are going to be fascinating. Um, you know, sort of how teams fit under the cap. We've seen the cap go up and up and up, and to see it come down a little bit, um, we don't know by how much. Um, but you know, how what does that mean in terms of retaining players or uh, any big contracts? But really, you know, the numbers thing is to me is only really interesting in what what players are available, what players can you afford, and what players. Uh, are just going to be priced out. Uh, are you going to be priced out of the market on? So um, I think the quarterback movement uh, is going to be fascinating. And we've already seen some of it. And, you know, to see uh, how Matt Stafford, for instance, who's never won a playoff game, how, how is he going to do in L.A. when he now finally has a running game, has a really good defense, and uh, – you know, the Rams are, are not only competing with the rest of the NFC, but they've got somebody sharing their building who's got a superstar, a rising superstar quarterback in Justin Herbert. Right. And so you're competing for the eyeballs in Los Angeles, uh, the hearts and minds of L.A. Uh, so that will be really interesting. And see what I'm interested in what happens to Jared Goff. You know, uh, here's a guy who people might want to write off as a bust, but I don't think he's been a bust at all. He's got the second most wins of any quarterback uh, during the last four years. He's, you know, they made the playoffs three times. They got to the Super Bowl is is his third year. Um, you know, people were down on him this season, but and he might not be the guy you put the game on his shoulders, but he's still a, a pretty good quarterback. I mean, I, I wouldn't say he's a top ten quarterback. Right. But I put him in maybe the top 20 quarterback. But you look at Derek Carr, he's coming off a phenomenal season. Uh, what's going to happen with him? Obviously, Deshaun Watson, uh, where is he going? That's a huge question. Does he wind up in the AFC West um, with, you know, Oakland or Las Vegas, rather, or, or, or Denver? Um, you know, what, what does Carolina do? What's What's their situation? I'd like to get your thoughts on that, Sam, while we're on this topic. We have had quite a turbulent couple years here, gauging 
what this owner and what this new regime is trying to do. Teddy Bridgewater was brought in on a three-year deal. Now it seems like Scott Fitter, the new general manager, and the entire regime views that as something they're having second thoughts on. Let's just say that. In your view, how close was Carolina? We've seen some reporting on this. How close was Carolina to landing Stafford in this deal? What's your sense on Carolina's situation right now? Well, I just back this up a little bit and just say that that I have uh, uh, extreme faith in Scott Fitter. He's a guy I've known. uh, I covered him when he was a high school kid. I know him uh, as well as I know anybody in the league. He's he's one of my favorite people in the league and and really smart personnel guy. And I thought he was fantastic in Seattle and found a lot of those hidden gems. Now, they had hits and misses like anybody else, but uh, I think the Panthers are in really good hands with Scott Bitter. And that was a guy who had many opportunities to leave the Seahawks and uh, and didn't, was waiting for the right opportunity and uh, took that. And so, um, and yeah, I think they were right down to the wire in the, in the Stafford uh, Derby. And L.A., uh, you know, was willing to part. And I don't know what what um, Carolina was willing to give up for uh, for Stafford. But right. the the Rams' philosophy has been um, dealing with first round picks. You know, they haven't had a first round pick since 2016. They uh, uh, they found some good players. Um, you know, the Cam Akers and the Cooper Cups and the Gerald Everett's and those players a little down the line in the draft. Um, you know, I'm not sure what where Carolina is, would, is going to do with the quarterback position. There was, you know, stability there and a star player there for many years. And, uh, you know, now it seems like they're um, – going to go in a different direction, whether that's through the draft. So I think it, it remains to be seen. But I, I will say one thing that I know is that they've got a smart guy at the helm and Scott Fitter. We talked to Doug Farrar. I know you know Doug pretty well. Mm-hmm. He's done some great reporting on Seattle for a long time, of course, globally with the NFL. And uh, Doug was of the same perspective, that there was going to be a different mindset brought to Carolina than we've seen with Marty Herney, Dave Gettleman. It's a very new approach. And as you, we can already see, Scott Fitterer said they're going to be on an every deal. You know, some of this can be hyperbole, Sam, but they've already made calls. So it's, it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm intrigued to, to definitely see what happens next. Uh, last question for you before we uh, let you scoot and get back to the dulcet tones of Jim Nance and Pebble Beach, because that's, <laughs> that's where I'd like to be right now. Um, what do you envision? Yeah. What do you envision moving forward in this 2021 season globe? It's hard to predict with COVID, but I've seen some of your posts, Sam, and I know California, I'm out here in South Carolina. It's an entirely different world on many levels, but this entire country mm-hmm. continues to struggle with this pandemic and the league is continuing to do their best to get these games played. As far as fans coming back though, as far as, you know, how things will look without the combine in a much different draft i'm sure what is your general sense for how 2021 will look as we stand right now well that's interesting i i went out to dinner at the super bowl with uh peter king and ben volan from the boston globe and we were talking about what 
what events do you think will, at what point do you think we'll, we will uh, have a semi-normal event? You know, will it be early in the season? Will vaccinations be to a point where we have that? Will it be, you know, the Super Bowl? Will the Super Bowl in LA next year be sort of the coming out event in sports, the first major, major magnitude event um, where fans are back in full? Um, yes, California is very different. And, um, you know, from the, uh, you know, they've not done a good job with vaccination distribution. Um, you know, it's very locked down. Uh, yeah, I look around, especially in Northern California. I mean, this is the place where right. Al Michaels and Chris Collinsworth had to wear masks on TV. Uh, the yeah. only city where they had to do that was Santa Clara. So, and the 49ers couldn't even play there at the end of the season. So I have a feeling that, um, that we're going to see some resumption of what we kind of saw as normal uh, around midway through next season and uh, or this this upcoming season, particularly with the, you know, Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which supposedly does not need to be refrigerated and might not have the efficacy of Moderna or Pfizer. You know, so maybe with a broader sort of, you know, into this fall when it feels like most people you know have been vaccinated, um, then we see, might see some resumption of yeah. a normal, you know. But I'll tell you, mm -hmm. it, it's just being in Tampa on Friday and Saturday night and seeing large groups of people who are unmasked um, made me nervous maybe nervous being in those situations. So I wonder when we're going to get back to a completely normal feeling of, Hey, I'm cool with being in a huge crowd of people and having people all around me. Um, I, I can tell you from, it might take a while. And I will say this to quote the great David Tepper. I'm not a doctor and Sam, I know you're not a doctor, so we'll not hold you to any of this stuff. <laughs> as far as forecasting. <laughs> Nor do I play one on TV. As <laughs> or, I said, yeah. I can't believe we're talking about this stuff. I know. Well, I mean, from your perspective. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. But I, I, like I said, from, from an NFL perspective, it's fascinating to get 
your view. Sam Farmer, Pro Football Hall of Fame McCann Award winner, joining us here on the Roar Podcast. You can find his work at latimes.com slash Sam at latimesfarmer on Twitter. He's a great follow. You're probably following him now. If you're not, get on it. Sam, this was a thrill, man. I, I've been a major fan of yours for oh. a long time. And uh, Billy and I can't thank you enough for making time, sir. Good luck in Pebble. And hopefully if you can make it to Charlotte soon, we'll catch up, man. That sounds terrific. John, Billy, thanks so much for having me on. Sam Farmer, LA Times, joins us here on the Roar Podcast right here on Blue Wire. The economy is made up of real people doing real stuff, and it affects everything, which you obviously know since you're a real person doing real stuff. Marketplace is here to help you get smart about everything beyond the what of the day's business and economic news. We dig into the how and the why with the real people driving our economy. From big tech and interest rates to small businesses and what's happening at the Fed, Marketplace breaks it all down so you don't have to. Listen to Marketplace wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the Roar Podcast. John Ellis, Billy Marshall with you as we are giving you a full Super Bowl recap bonanza here. Thanks to Sam Farmer, by the way, from the LA Times for joining us. And uh, Billy, you know, just a lot to discuss from from our end, you and me here. We haven't talked in a few days. We haven't spoken since the Super Bowl. Uh, what did you think of that game? <laughs> Obviously, we don't love seeing Tampa win the Super Bowl. What's up with that, man? Yeah, and no, I was DMing a few people on, you know, Thursday and Friday, and I was talking to a couple other friends, close friends of mine who – um, you know, are big time gamblers. They live in, uh, they don't live in Vegas, but they, they live like in the West coast and um, they put down a lot of money. And I was just like, Hey guys, like, I really, really, really feel like, um, you know, Tampa is a really good play here just from a betting standpoint, plus three, they, um, you know, they have the situation where they're comfortable in their own backyard. I know that they um, did get beat pretty badly. Uh, well, it wasn't pretty badly. They made scored some points in garbage time, the first meeting, but I just felt like, despite that being garbage time, there were some things that they did that kind of exposed Kansas City's defense. And for me, that was just the biggest thing. It was like you have a situation where the Chiefs are missing four offensive linemen. Mahomes, I was reading reports throughout the week that he was healthy, but um, that toe was still bothering him somewhat. And I just, I really felt like this was an opportunity for Tampa to really take it to them. Um, and I, now, again, I took the three points. I thought maybe Tampa could win, but I w- wasn't expecting it. Right. Uh, I, I definitely felt Tampa plus three was the play. And uh, lo and behold, it was much more worse than that for the Chiefs. It was a, a complete and utter beatdown. I'm sure, I mean, the refs, they, they weren't great, in my opinion, even if you disregard two touchdowns by the Bucks, It's still uh, a game that the you know, it's still a game that Tampa easily handles. And I think... Uh, the biggest thing for me in that game, I don't know about you, was just the way that um, Kansas City's um, defense, that that was a thing that no one's really mentioning is how right. uh, poor they played. And that, that it's surprising because we've seen Spagnuolo defenses really affect Brady in the past. So, um, that, that was uh, that, that was disappointing if, if I'm a Chiefs fan. But, uh, I mean, hey, it, was, um, I, I don't, it wasn't a good game, to be honest with you. We've seen it was much terrible. Better. It, it, reminded me, it reminded me a lot of, of Tampa's last Super Bowl win, Billy, back in '03. Yeah. It had that same vibe to it. it yeah, to me quite... it was like, yeah, no, I was going to say Seattle-Denver was another one. Yep, yep. It, it had that same feel to it. The officiating w- was a bit sloppy at times. 
Uh, I, I agree with you. That That's a storyline. I know Mark Schofield did a piece on this, on, on the sort of the flip side of what you're talking about, but the same theme of what the job Tampa's offensive line did. And I think overall they did a great job schematically commanding the game from that first touchdown drive where they went heavy, they got the run going, they ran play action off that, they slowed down what Spags likes to do, which is bring heat and light you up. And no better way to do that than to run the ball with Fournette pass out of big formations, hit that tight end screen, and then they run that little PA slide down there, uh, that little RPO slide for the touchdown. That I thought that drive was crucial for everything. But, yeah, globally, I don't think Chris Jones – I mean, we talk about this guy a lot. I don't believe he's had a playoff sack in his career yet. And I know sacks aren't everything. But I, I was certainly not only disappointed with KC's defense, but even more uh, impressed – by the offensive line and the play calling by Leftwich and Arians, I thought just Tampa was masterful early in that game. And, of course, defensively, I'm sure we're going to get to that, the job Todd Bowles and that, that secondary and front seven did. Man, they're just so athletic. It's so fun to watch them on tape. You know, it, it's really interesting. Um, I thought Chris Jones actually had a really good Super Bowl um, a couple years ago against San Francisco, despite him not having a sack. I thought he was really effective. Uh, in that game, but but this game, uh, yeah, I, I I agree with you. I, I just felt like Kansas City they just have very slow and um, I mean they're not bad players like Kitchens and Lo- Damian um, um I I can't forget his <laughs> last name, but I, I know he used to play for the Cowboys. Damian Wilson, um, th- yeah. they're they're fine linebackers, but they're just not really athletic. And, you know, in a situation where you're going to have to guard the middle of the field against Gronk and Brait and potentially Godwin in the slot, it's, it's, it's a very um, difficult proposition for you. So, yeah, I, I agree. I was, um, you know, very disappointed in the Chiefs' defense. But, you know, to me, I, I just felt like, um, you know, a lot of things were in Tampa's favor. And I'm sure we'll get to it when we discuss how their offense did, the Kansas City's offense. Yeah, no question. I guess I I can sort of take you down that road now from a defensive perspective from what we saw from Tampa. uh, I I just thought from from the get-go was outstanding. Now, this is no secret. We talked to John Ledyard in the preseason, Billy. or Actually, I think he was previewing one of the early games this season. And, uh, you know, we we talked about Todd Bowles. You and I have been talking about Todd's defense for two years now, particularly in the run game, and how good they are, how stout they are with Vitavea, with Sue, um, JPP. But in terms of some of the things I saw on tape, and again, I, I'm not a maestro in terms of tape study, but I know enough of what I'm looking at to see, man, some of these games they ran up front were outstanding. And the thing that stood out to me, not only that, but Levante David matched up, you know, one-on-one on Kelsey. And then the secondary in general, how aggressive and effective they were crashing down on these routes. I just, the tape was so fun to watch from that perspective. It's not fun if you're a Panthers fan, obviously, but from a football perspective, I just thought they were so well synchronized in that game, Billy. Yeah, totally. I I just felt like they knew what they were doing. And I mean, it. I really do feel for the Chiefs and I, I feel for Remmers. I mean, he's not a left tackle. He even... Um, you know, at, at the, on the right side, he was very serviceable replacing an all pro and Mitchell Schwartz. Yeah, he had a good yeah, year. Very, good, very year good year for, for a swing tackle. He was really good at, um, as a backup. But when you move him to the left side, that's just uh, very, it's asking for trouble. And, and it's nothing against Remmers. It's just like well, you no, run out of bodies. Just and, quickly on that, I want to make a point that no, it's nothing personal with Remmers. We, you know, the Panthers know the story with this guy. He's given up a lot of pressures in two Super Bowls. And, 
honestly, it's just a matter of injuries and running out of healthy bodies at this point. In Carolina's situation, it was just a bad matchup. So what are you going to do? He's not exactly a first-round blue-chip guy. He is who he is, and this is what happens when Mike Rimmers plays left tackle against that defense. Yeah, totally. It's, um, it was tough. And then I, I think the biggest like team-building thing that really kind of stuck out to me, um, you know, with regards to Tampa's like personnel and defense, is they consistently, since Jason Light has been there, invested in the secondary and that's included some high profile misses they drafted uh, vernon hargraves like top 10 in 2016 and he turned out to be a bust but they stuck with their philosophy they drafted mj stewart another guy very high in the second round he turned out to be a bust for them but they stuck again to their philosophy they drafted carlton davis jamel dean um, murphy bunting uh, winfield uh, whitehead uh, Ed Mike Edwards, I think he's still on their team. Um, so they just you you have to like really appreciate that sort of conviction in your process on how on team building, and that's something that really um, not just Carolina but any team could use uh, moving forward. Yeah, Carlton Davis, Jamel Dean, Winfield Jr. Of course, uh, now becomes uh, part of a father son duo now that has intercepted balls in the postseason, which I think is fascinating. Uh, Mike Edwards with an effective season at times, uh, Jordan Whitehead. Yeah, I mean, look, they, they – and we've seen this team twice this year now. And what, what stands out to me, not only in terms of the team building on defense, but just how they peaked at the right time. And I, I know some people don't buy into that. You know, they think that's, you know, garbage, that everything is random in this league. But Belichick has always said, and I don't think it's, you know, without merit – that the best teams start to play their best ball after Thanksgiving. And when we saw what happened with this team at seven and five, they ran the table. Uh, we've seen other teams do this in the past. We've seen uh, a team in the, the Panthers do this at one time in 2003, they ran the table all the way to the Super Bowl, just like this. Uh, so I just thought that was an interesting dynamic. And I go back to, to, to what Tom Brady does for this entire deal. Now, now there's a storyline out there, of course, that's just, it, it gets tiring after a while that, you know, he's the goat and wins and this and that. And, you know, we all know how great he is. We all know Belichick got contributions as well. So I'm not interested in that debate, but what did, what, how, give me your perspective on Tom Brady's um, intangible impact on this team from day one. How much of that do you buy into in terms of what, he was able to do not only just from a leadership perspective, but just giving them the confidence to, to go forward. Or was it just a matter of better execution and less turnovers? Um, yeah, it's oh. interesting. <laughs> yeah. It, it's a very, um, it's a very multi-layered kind of discussion. I feel like because, you know, while Brady played fine, I mean, he, he was good. I, I wouldn't say he was as, in my opinion, he was not the best player in Tampa's offense. I would give credit to the offensive line and Gronk uh, in particular. Um, those, they really stood out to me before Brady. But, I mean, I, again, I the stuff I read and, um, you know, I hear from, like, trusted reporters, they obviously say that the intangibles make a huge impact. And, I mean, I don't think anyone disagrees that Brady, from an intangible point of view, is probably the greatest quarterback ever. Um, you know, it's some of the other stuff that kind of you have to judge him for. But, uh, but yeah, I mean that, that it's really important, I guess. If that's you know something that they've missed throughout you know their twenty 
odd years not being in the playoffs um, since you know they won the Super Bowl, or whatever. Uh, yeah, it, it's intangibles are huge at the quarterback position. You have to make sure that you have a quarterback who's not only a leader but holds first of all himself accountable, and then um, from there he can command the respect and hold everyone else accountable. So I don't know if that it's something that's really hard for us on the outside to judge too. If you know sure. what I mean. No, I I totally agree, and I, I I brought that to your attention because I, as much as anybody out there, I appreciate your viewpoint on these things because I think we get sucked into the quarterback wins vortex on the mainstream media in terms of how ESPN looks at this. And what you and I have always tried to do, I think, is look at this from a multi-layer perspective. And sometimes it takes a little time to peel back those layers. I'll just say, you know, look, you can look at his second half of that Green Bay game and you see three picks on the board. He's in Jake DeLome territory at that point. (laughs) But, you know, uh, to be honest, and then there's a, a call at the end of that game that you and I talked about that will, will live in infamy for Green Bay fans for in, in Aaron Rodgers' mind for a long time. Uh, the, the, of course, the defensive holding call. Um, but I do think that, you know, from everything I've heard from interviews this week from players, and I think they're genuine. I've heard Ryan Suckup talk about this, Jadon Mickens, uh, some other low-level guys you don't hear about a lot. Tom comes in. He knows your name right away. He doesn't treat you like you know, he's a diva. And I, I think that people need to understand that most star quarterbacks – I think probably treat their teammates that way. He's just better than everybody else in terms of his mind processing and his ability to get things done in pressure situations. Now they built a lead in this game, obviously he threw for 201 yards, three touchdowns. And I just thought Billy in the second half, just, I guess we can touch on Kansas city's offense and then uh, do a little Carolina chatter here before we head on out. I, I thought that the Mahomes stuff, I, I saw some incompletions from him that were better some, than some completions I've seen in Carolina over the past two years. What he can do athletically, of course, is remarkable. But I just thought they had an opportunity in that game to get some of their other receivers involved early on. That's how I viewed it. I viewed it, you know, I, I know Watkins was active. I, I guess I thought he'd have somewhat of a role like he did in the, in the Super Bowl against San Fran. That was not the case. Uh, you know, they have some other options as well. Hardman was barely a part of the, the, the mix there. So I just think they missed a few opportunities. And I felt that Tampa at times sort of did that Belichick thing where, okay, we'll let you run a little bit between the 20s. We'll give you some yards. But when it comes down to the red zone, hey, we're going to clamp down and know what you're going to do. What were your thoughts on Biennemi and, and Reed's game plan? Do, do you think there were any flaws in that in terms of protection or, or play calling? Yeah, it's it's so easy to play Monday morning quarterback. Um, first of all, I'm not accusing you of doing that. I know you don't, you're you're probably one of the guys who <laughs> usually doesn't do that. Um, Twitter in general. That's why I've kind of just I'm, I'm waiting for this week to kind of finish so I can <laughs> hop back on and give my unfiltered love it takes. But no, seriously, um, it's to be quite frank with you, I've watched every single game Mahomes has played this year. I felt like that was one of the best, best games. And from a production standpoint, obviously, it's not going to show that. I know there were a lot of people um, disappointed in him for whatever reason. But it's, it's just really tough to construct a functional NFL offense when you're missing so much talent at the, in the offensive line. Yeah. Um, now, look, they tried to mitigate those by having throwing screens to uh, their running backs. But Tampa, they, were, they have some really long and athletic Edge rusher. So JPP was able to get his hand on a couple. Shaq Barron, their linebackers, were able to 
um, you know, come over the top and prevent any screens from happening. So they tried that. Uh, I mean, they tried the regular game plan, but Tampa was um, very smart to play their safeties deep this time. So they don't give up those um, situations at the end of the first game where Tyree Kill had like 200 yards in the first quarter. So they, it was very difficult. And just in general, like, um, yeah, everyone's making a big deal out of the edge rushers, but the interior of their offensive line got exposed a few times, not just from, um, Vita Vea, but uh, Sue had a decent game. Raheem um, Nunez Rochas had a decent game. Uh, so it, it was just a reckoning. And it kind of reminded me in some aspects of Carolina's Super Bowl against Denver. Oh, most certainly. It, it just like you have a very talented quarterback um, doing pretty much everything he can to will his team to victory. And again, I thought Mahomes, he battled and he played his butt off. I There is no one on that team that I – um, think deserves any type of negativity, uh, especially him. He- oh, and the discourse has been disgusting on that, by the way. And, you know, that's going to happen after these games. But just some of these meatheads you hear on Sports Talk or, you know, on Twitter. Twitter can be such a hellscape, as our friend Mark Scofield calls it. And for anybody w- with a brain in their head to, to look at Mahomes and say, that, oh, you know, here we go in a big game. This is what you get. You got to peel back the layers here. Obviously, you and I know that. There were some major deficiencies with their offensive line, and they ran into a buzzsaw, Billy. They just did. I mean, they kept, you know, the friends of I were watching that game, and they kept saying, well, this is the Mahomes rally. We've seen it. And I just kept saying to myself, guys, I can feel the flow of this game. It ain't going to happen. This is too dominant of a defense, and they're in too much control on offense to, to piss this thing away. It really so- did kind of remind me of 2015 Super Bowl. Absolutely. And here's the testament to that. Carolina was in that game with seven minutes left. <laughs> with I think that's partially because Denver's offense was so bad. That, that's, that's my point. Denver's <laughs> offense only relied on basically a, a couple passes here and there to the tight end, and then the C.J. Anderson had a nice game. But Peyton Manning was atrocious. I mean, he threw a pick to Coney Ely for crying out loud. So, <laughs> I remember yeah. that. Oh, yeah. I mean, Coney, Coney, you know, if they had won, Coney could have won the MVP, Billy. <laughs> he had like a strip yeah. sack and – uh, pick, but yeah, Br- uh, Manning was brutal, and, and Brady's obviously playing at a much higher level right now than that. And Tampa obviously is an all-star team right now. I mean, they got Antonio Brown playing at a high level again, Gronk out of retirement and in good form, Godwin and Evans. I mean, this is just if you're looking at the the NFC South, we can shift to Carolina here. Obviously, from a from a NFC South global perspective. Um, folks have said, well, you know, the window's closing, you know, obviously with, with New Orleans. And, yeah, they're, they're in a situation than, than, than Tampa in many ways. They're much different. Uh, Atlanta's got a mess on their hands, I think, in terms of Ryan and, and the salary cap and what they have to do. But they have an intriguing staff they're building. And now Carolina's sort of in this tween zone where, uh, you know, we're trying to get Stafford. We hate that we signed Bridgewater. I mean, I think they do because they're trying to get rid of him in year two. And uh, Tampa, all of a sudden, with Brady, you know, barely getting touched, might play for a few more years. So as you look at the landscape of this division right now, um, I, I guess my question would be, where do you see Carolina in the mix moving forward, at least in the short term? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, but at the same time, it's, there's so much offseason to go. Um, now, if I'm just looking at it um, today – Obviously, Carolina has to address some of their weaknesses, whatever they are. I'll let people decide that. We've gone over that in depth on previous shows. But for me, I, I think New Orleans is getting a little underrated um, here because you know we, we can obviously uh, mourn the loss in a good way of Drew Brees. Um, but, I, I mean, 
whatever we feel about Taysom Hill or Jameis Winston, I mean, Sean Payton is like an excellent coach. I mean, they went five and zero with Teddy last year, and then this year they were what three and one with Taysom. So he's gone. Eight he and got one. he got Teddy paid thirty three guaranteed. I mean, then no, that's then, how good Sean is. <laughs> you know, it's funny because I I remember that. Then I go back to two thousand fifteen. When they came to Charlotte week three and they had Luke McCown thrown all over the place. And right. if it wasn't for a Josh Norman, like insane interception, won. winning that game. So I, I never underestimate Sean Payton. I mean, you could throw, um, you know, a 50 year old Jake DeLone back there. And I still feel like they'll <laughs> I'd have love this. I'd love to see that. That'd be fun. <laughs> Jake, um, back I, to... <laughs> real quickly, just let me say this about Sean Payton. I'm going to let you finish here. I, I, I've studied his career for a long time. I know you have too. And it was a love-hate relationship with Panthers fans. I've taken kind of my fan hat off for that because I know he rubs a lot of people the wrong way. But in terms of his presence as a coach, his influences from the Parcells tree, working under some great coaches of his own, and getting just, you know, he, I, I've read about his relationship with Parcells and what he wanted to bring in terms of toughness, running the football, being a physical team on both sides in the trenches, but then the innovation stuff. Parcells has talked about that, how Sean was able to branch out what his standards were and to create his own thing in terms of the passing tree, the innovation side of the, the passing game. But I, I will say this. As long as Sean is there, I, I, they're, they're a perennial 10-win team because they've got that defense set to the Yeah, team. I agree. And whoever plays quarterback next, I think will be an upgrade from what they've seen from Breeze. I really do. And they might trade a couple guys. I think Michael Thomas is probably the one guy that I'd keep an eye on if they trade because he has a big deal and uh, we saw some of his flaws exposed. And I think there's a little bit of tension in that organization between – um, the two sides, and then this goes back a long way. Back in last offseason, there were some um, issues with, especially as it came with the social justice. Um, you know, back in uh, June, um, so I, that just just keep an eye. I feel like on that situation, this isn't me like breaking any rumors. I've I've read um, a few other re- reporters suggest that maybe Thomas is a guy that could be moved uh, because they got they got to pay some guys too, like Trey Hendrickson. He's probably a guy like that they're going to allow to walk, but they got to pay Marshawn Lattimore and Atlanta for me. I, I don't know what to expect. I mean, it seems like they're going through a rebuilding situation, uh, but they still have Matt Ryan and Julio Jones. So I don't know. They're, they're a fascinating team to watch this off season, especially at the quarterback position, what they do in the draft. And then, yeah, I mean, Tampa's like Godwin's a free agent, but I mean, outside of that, it seems like they have their team pretty much intact. Joe Person wrote a uh, – Joe, Joe, by the way, has done some great work, I think, this offseason in terms of uh, giving us the lay of the land as far as scenarios. But Carolina has 21 pending free agents on the roster. You've got Taylor Moten, Curtis Samuel, uh, F.A. Obata, who's restricted, John Miller's unrestricted. Um, as, as you look at what they have ahead of them from, from a retention standpoint, obviously Moten comes to mind. Uh, where, where can this team go in terms of who they have on the roster – right now and and where can they get better uh not only from within but maybe from the outside trades aside billy so i read a piece um from jeremy fowler on espn i know i think you cited that piece this week too if i'm not mistaken um and the the first thing i wanted to find was terry moton obviously because he's one of our um, own players and he's one of the best right tackles in the nfl in my opinion yes and you know Fowler is a pretty good um, reporter, uh, but he did say in that article that he expects Carolina to either come to a long-term deal or to franchise tag uh, Moton. So that's pretty encouraging news. 
Um, so we'll see what they do. And the franchise that, is estimated to be around 13.6 million right now, as it's reported by Joe Person in the that's athletic. pretty cheap. Yeah, I think that would be uh, <laughs> yeah for what he gives you, right? Absolutely. And I I don't know if that that doesn't really solve your 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 issue at left tackle necessarily. But I mean, we've talked about teams, Billy. I mean, look at the Tampa. Look at these other teams that that have two rock solid options. Look at you know what's going on in Baltimore now with Orlando Brown. You know, they've got two very good options there at tackle, and one now wants out reportedly because he feels like he's a left tackle and uh, wants a fresh start. Mm-hmm. Carolina needs to make sure going in, they at least have one rock-solid tackle to start next season, and they've got one on Moten uh, on the roster. So I think you're right. They need to, to get that locked up there. Where do you think Curtis is heading? Do you think he's coming back? Yeah, I think Curtis Samuel is probably going to be the odd man out here. Um, and that's obviously a situation that I hope doesn't happen. I hope he returns, uh, but I'm just kind of – playing the numbers and just I feel like I feel like it's a numbers game at this point and I feel like Samuel for what he produced this year is going to be um, in demand and I feel like he's gonna have a pretty strong market uh, and I don't think Carolina is going to be able to afford that obviously I wish they could but I just I'm not sure I see him returning and I mean the others I'm not really sure anyone else excites me uh, because yeah. I'm sure you can bring a few of these guys back on a minimum deal or a one-year deal maybe even. Uh, But yeah, I think Moton has to be the priority. And if there's a situation where you can bring back Samuel, then that would be very encouraging to me. Let's face it. Samuel has been one of the better vertical guys in the league and has gone uh, unrewarded for that for two or three years now, Billy, because of, some really inadequate quarterback play, even with Newton with his shoulder, and then with Kyle Allen, and again with, with what happened this year with Bridgewater. I, I just think Curtis is going to thrive in a system that, that lets him you know, go vertical and somebody that can give him the damn ball. And unfortunately, I don't think it's going to be here. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm totally with you. I think uh, Jacksonville is probably an ideal situation for him because Urban Meyer recruited Urban Meyer, him. Right. Um, and I think they – probably looking to they have a lot of cap space as well so it's not like carolina can compete with uh, teams like the jaguars or the jets when it comes to cap space this offseason and uh, those teams are going to be using it i'm sure i i think that that, that gets to my point is, is we kind of wrap things up here with deshaun watson we still don't know much about that situation all we know is the team is in in, in somewhat of a spiral still their team president re- resigned today and Obviously, he was reportedly frustrated with the process. So it's not just Deshaun here. There's a narrative out there that Watson's taking a wrecking ball to his teammates, and this is a bad way of going about business. And I just don't agree with that, Billy. I I just think this is a very uniquely dysfunctional situation that um, merits Watson taking ownership uh, of his future. And I I don't blame him one bit. Now, will he land in Carolina? I have my doubts about that. I just – because here's the thing, Bill – they're at number eight in the draft. They don't have a blue chip top three pick that, that gets you one of those guys. And I don't know if that's a great lead in for that trade package. Um, obviously they have McCaffrey, they have some other vets that would be mm-hmm. enticing, but I just, from the Watson perspective, I'm going to kind of leave it at that for right now. There's other names out there. I'll turn to the draft though, Billy, you know, combine this year there's going to be pro days and workouts and I'm sure we'll, we'll see some news from those, but just right now, as, as we sit here in, in the middle of February, do you have a general sense of where Carolina might turn their attention in the draft? Yeah, it, it, it's so tough to tell, John, because, you know, 
we're sitting February 10th and there's so much, usually there's so much process that has to go through um, like the combine, like pro days, like private visits, private workouts, and then all the phone calls and security information that you got by security. I mean like investigation, make sure they're off field. Right. Shoes are clean. I don't know. I really don't. It. I, I'm, I'm still going to um, go with what I said uh, during our senior bowl episode. It's, I, I think Carolina, because they didn't trade, um, if they do keep the number eight pick, which um, with Stafford off the board, I think they probably will. And uh, they're probably going to use it to trade up for one of these QBs. That's what I see happening now. Which QB that is, I don't know at this uh, stage of the process. you have any interest in Carson Wentz whatsoever? No. Okay, good. I agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. That contract is is not fun to look at, and uh, he's been hurt. He's hurt himself with his back. He's he's had some ups and downs, and I, I don't want to touch that. I really don't. I don't think I don't think you're moving forward with that. Yeah, and um, Bill and Bill Voth and Joe Person kind of threw some hints out there that Carolina's not really involved in that. Yeah, that's that's the sentiment I, I'm I'm thinking too, just from reading those guys, and they're they're much more in the loop than we are. But you just, you know, these things can come up and, and sneak up on you. You never know. Uh, you know, the, the Sam Darnold stuff, you just don't know. That's names out. That, it just, it, it's going to be fascinating. That's why I said a couple weeks ago, buckle up, kids. It's going to be a hell of a few weeks and a couple months, really, with the Sean situation. Very likely, you know, it, it, could go, it, could, it could resolve itself before the draft or maybe not. It's hard to tell where they are right now in terms of their thinking. I'll just say this once again, that Carolina, you need a quarterback, but you, you you got some time to get it done right. And I'd hate for them with the Stafford thing comes to mind, Billy, you and I talked about this. I'd hate for them to, to just go balls out right now and, and mortgage too yeah, much man. for a guy that's not worth it. Watson's the only guy I do that for because he's 25 and yes. he's a top five guy. I don't, I don't get whatever. It's, it's just very confusing to me what the urgency is. Well, that's no. It's a valid discussion, Billy. I mean, we haven't talked about this at length. Is this a fitterer thing? All of a sudden, you know, hey, what we heard from from Matt and 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 Dave in year one was just getting to know each other, and they didn't know how to message this thing. So let's set a low bar. And now fitterer comes in, and they recalibrate their plans. That's the feeling I get. That okay, you know what? All of a sudden, the marking conditions changed. Watson is suddenly reportedly available. So is Stafford, and. Tepper, who I, we talked to Joe Person, Billy, he said this about Tepper, and, and I've talked about this too, that Tepper doesn't want to continue to lose games. So I think this patience thing sounded good in the beginning, but I always had my doubts as to whether or not they could follow that blueprint. Had they traded for Stafford, that had catastrophic ramifications potentially, and that's nothing against Stafford. But the fact that they were that close to getting that done, I still shake my head at that. I just – I don't even – What's I don't the know. plan? I mean, what, what – <laughs> It just like how does Stafford fit into a Joe Brady offense that's exactly. not really like predicated on um, a lot of under center drop back play action vertical? It to me, it, it I don't know. It's it's going to be fascinating to to just watch what they do and you know, trading for a Stafford or once doesn't make sense at all. Uh, even trading for Darnold doesn't. I mean, if it's Darnold for like a third round pick, fine, whatever. Like I can stomach that, but even that uh, doesn't excite me. That's you know, and I'm, I, no, I, I agree. You know, these top three quarterbacks in this draft all have a unique skill set. And, and then you've got Lance there. I, I, I don't know if you agree with this, but I think those are clearly the top four guys in this draft in terms of the quarterback position. 
uh, Wilson, Lance, Fields, and then, of course, Lawrence. I honestly just, the, the more I hear and read about Mac Jones, I've seen enough of him to know what you're getting with him. And I, I don't think that's the right path either. I don't think trading back or some people have suggested to me on the radio. I was on a talk show the other day, Billy said, would you draft Mac Jones at eight? I said, absolutely not. Absolutely not. I don't. Yeah. Think. Mac Jones in the second round is fine, but yeah, I mean, sure. But not top 15. No. Yeah. It's, I just, I, you're getting, you're getting I, Garoppolo. I mean, you're getting Garoppolo. If you do that, you're back in that cycle. Yeah, I mean, Garoppolo in the second round is a fine value on a rookie contract, but in the top eight, it's no. Just trade up for one of the top, um, you know, the other three quarterbacks who aren't, who has a Trevor Lawrence. Uh, And if you don't feel comfortable with one of those, then just take the best player available or trade down and get more assets and continue building your team. I don't understand the time crunch here. You're given like a seven-year contract. You're not given like a three-year contract. I appreciate the fact that they, they want to win. I get it, but they have the real potential to build this thing lopsided if they go too heavy in on quarterback and they don't build everything else proper around it. Because let's be honest, this defense, as inspired as it was, Billy, and I thought Phil Snow did a great job, they're razor thin. And they have no depth. I mean, especially – yeah, I mean, they just, they're so thin. Obviously, they need another corner opposite of uh, Dante, but they got to get some depth, Billy. That's one of their biggest things right now. No, I'm glad you mentioned it, John. And, and that, again, th- this team is not one position away. Now, yes, the franchise quarterback certainly masks issues um, in other areas of the offense, but you just continue to build your team, be patient, like – you guys are, you know, consistently mentioning, you know, taking a long-term view and mentioning the words process. And I mean, what, what does this process do That's when you're what, just consistently right. like throwing, making these short-term acquisitions? I, I, I said the same thing last off season, the Bridgewater signing, the way they went about that and the way they, you know, they signed Robbie Anderson, it, it, it was a half a tank. It was like, okay, we want to be competitive. We want to win some games here with some veterans but they paid Teddy Bridgewater $33 million guaranteed for five wins in New Orleans. That's what they paid for. <laughs> Nothing else on – Billy, you've seen his tape in Minnesota too. I mean, look, it's not just the late game comeback stuff. It takes a unit to do that. It's not just all in the quarterback. But some of the, 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 the limitations there. So that right away was a red flag to me that, okay, this – Evan Cooper reportedly, and this is in an article, said, hey, if you ever go to the NFL, Teddy Bridgewater is the guy you got to go get. And they went and got him. And I don't know what the marketplace was for Teddy. I don't know who else was willing to pay him a three-year deal worth that much with an opt-out in the third year. But red flags came up there. And now these are more red flags when you start doubling back on what was a very, to me, it was a very cogent plan in terms of we're going, we're going young on defense. We're going to build patiently. But like I said, Billy, and I'll close out with this, anything this owner has said, anything this coach has said before the hire of Scott Fitter, I'm putting a bit of an asterisk beside it because honestly, I think um, it, it's a bit of a reset now. I really do. Yeah. Let, let's see. And I'm obviously rumors are rumors and reports are reports, but until these moves are made, yeah. uh, I, I want to see how they pivot in this situation. Yeah. It'll be fascinating. We will be back with you guys next week. We've got a special guest coming up scheduled right now for our Tuesday show, Stephen Ruiz from for the win, USA Today, one of their best analysts. I know Billy loves his work, uh, has, has been uh, interacting with him for a while, and I've, I've gotten to know Stephen a little bit on Twitter here recently, and he's always a fun follow. So Stephen's going to hop on with us, and 
He's followed this Carolina saga too, Billy, so I'm sure he's going to have some thoughts on uh, where they are right now. Once again, we appreciate you guys. Thanks to Sam Farmer, LA Times, for joining us. For Billy Marshall, this is John Ellis. Thanks again for listening to The Roar on Blue Wire. See you next time.